Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson, and our very special interview this week is with two returning guests to Trigonometry, Claire Fox and Ella Whelan. Welcome back. For anyone who doesn't know who you are, Claire, you are, of course, the founder and director of the Academy of Ideas, and very recently, Brexit Party MEP for the Northwest. Have I got that right? And Ellen, you're a brilliant journalist, and you're part of the Battle of Ideas, which is one of the things that we'll be talking about, and an author, of course, in your own right. So welcome back, both of you. Thanks. It's good to have you after that very long intro. Uh, We wanted to talk to you about the Battle of Ideas, the event, but actually the Battle of Ideas as the Battle of Ideas more generally about what's happening in our society, what's happening about just our ability to have a conversation. Uh, We've had, you know, the... the discussion in Parliament in the last couple of weeks about inflammatory language, all, all this stuff is kicking off. And it seems to be very difficult now to discuss any ideas at all without people getting aggravated and insults being thrown. So where are we in terms of our ability to talk about things as a society, in your opinion, Claire? I think you feel as though society's become tongue-tied in some respects. There's a real sense in which people are very conscious if they say the wrong thing, they might be attacked for being offensive, for being inflammatory, for saying uh, things which will upset other people, being accused of inciting violence. So there's a sense of people walking on eggshells that coexists with people being entirely unrestrained and saying the most preposterous things all at the same time. So it's like this really weird thing, you know, sometimes I don't know whether I can say that. And then people just being utterly abusive in a way, you know, and by the way, I I think that this is almost regardless of what kind of politics you espouse, it's not particularly confined to one group of people. I think the recent parliamentary spat about inflammatory language caused some upset because, um, as you rightly pointed out, one would never be able to use a metaphor anymore. If you constantly having to, if people say you can't use any battle analogies or any uh, military analogies, well, we're in trouble because we run a festival called the Battle of Ideas. Mm, start right. Time, right, you know, there's <laughs> battle for education and, and so on. So you know, that's that's where we start. But on the other hand, it also felt very hypocritical because it might well be that. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, had ratcheted up the language and certainly was doing very big rhetorical uh, um, uh, kind of huge swathes of making himself out to be the great leader of this big uh, 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 Brexit battle. Um, And people were saying, well, you know, calm down a bit. But these, on the one hand, are people who've spent quite some time accusing other people of being Nazis, fascists, uh, you know, leading to the Third Reich and and so on and so forth. And quite violent imagery has been deployed in terms of trying to stop um, Brexit. But I don't want to just get confined to Brexit. I'm just saying that the sense of double standards and hypocrisy is something that we have to bear in mind just winds people up, certainly winds me up. Well, I mean, we're all, according to some people, we're all Nazis in this room, which is, <laughs> which is lovely, lovely to have a third right meeting. Um, surely, Ellie, isn't that people's right to, you know, say what they think? You know, if someone thinks you're a fascist, they're welcome to do that and it doesn't really have any effect? No, it, well, it doesn't have an effect if you, it only does if you let it have an effect. And obviously... Um, I and Claire and the actually the, the slogan of the Battle of Ideas is free speech allowed. So it's very much about having that public debate being in favour of people just saying what they think. But I, I think the context is key because at the moment, the panic about 
speech and words like surrender or humbug or whatever it is that politicians are throwing <laughs> what around. A terrible word, humbug. I mean, as well as the kind of worry about escalating language on social media and the effect it has, um, sometimes quite serious issues about, as Claire says, abusive language on social media is happening at a time in which we've got a broader political issue going on, which is a quite deep fear of the public and a fear of the masses and quite a lot of prejudice going on. And so there's this sort of when people, especially people in political power, um, talk about the, the, the fear of demagogues or Nazis or whoever it is uh, inciting violence through their speech um, and the need to kind of everyone to calm down. What it really is is saying is we're quite scared of having a public debate um, because if that public debate happens, then, you know, s- the mob are going to grab their pitchforks and are going to come after us. And of course, that's one entirely not true, but it also is... Uh, it's escalating and creating a problem that they're afraid of. They're afraid that people are going to get violent, get uh, rebellious um, and cause problems. But at the same time, they're saying no one talk about anything. No one criticise us. No one do anything. Anything you say is not just wrong, but illegal. And I tell you, there's one, this is what people who are interested in free speech always point out, and it's true, that if you want to make a problem out of something, push it underground, censor it, give it a kind of glamour that it shouldn't necessarily enjoy. And that's when the problem happens. So um, the antidote is always sunlight, is always more debate, is always more speech. And you've got at the moment a political establishment, which is just so hostile to any kind of discussion about its actions which I think isn't going to end well if it keeps going down this very censorious route. And this is where the Battle of Ideas, the festival that you guys run every year, comes in, because one of the great things about that is you genuinely get people from all over the political spectrum. I mean, you know, we'll be interviewing Lord Adonis, uh, who is not going to be that popular with most of our <laughs> pro of viewers, I imagine. But, but you get people from across the spectrum, genuinely, and uh, that's one of the things I really enjoyed. Like, I'm curious how you managed to do that, actually, because we struggle to get like you know kind of woke leftist guests on because they are afraid to be even tarnished by association so how do you get all these people together well it's just, i mean i think people understand that i think people are cautious about things being a setup and so a lot of the time in political debate in the media for example anyone who's ever done it knows that you get put into a room and you get told to kind of battle it out with each other and it can often be quite fractious the difference about the festival is because it's centered around public debate actually the focus is not on the speakers themselves but within their interaction with a wider audience. And so people understand that this is a genuine platform where you will be given a fair shot to try and win over the audience. And I think anyone who's serious about their political views, whether you are a socialist or a hard right person, whatever view you have, what we're essentially saying is go for it. And you might well completely win over the audience and I might be devastated because I've lost the argument. <laughs> but it's a, it is a fair game. And it has been a fair game for 15 years. And I think people really appreciate that space to do it. And as it happens, as it often is the case that at the festival, um, I will enter a room hating someone's political views and ready to make a contribution to the floor and really nail them and come out being convinced that actually I was being completely one-sided about something. So it's it's that kind of a, it's a different space for public debate than happens within, you know, media discussions or other places. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things to add. Um, 
I think that um, to go back to our prior conversation in terms of why people maybe would be reluctant to come on your show or sometimes would be reluctant to speak at a festival like the Battle of Ideas, I think that one of the, the more worrying aspects of what's happened in recent years, and this is relatively new, is that labels have been used to delegitimize different uh, opponents. So, the, and basically, if you know, if if you are a kind of far right fascist, if you see what I mean, like the way these like the four of us, are, <laughs> yeah, the way that these terms are bandied round, you know, and you want to go, no, actually, I'm on the left, and I'm just kind of a, le- a reasonable Democrat, but you kind of can't get the word in. You're delegitimate because what that says is you aren't worth engaging with. Mm. So that's one thing. So you don't have to talk to you at all because, you know, if you're so beyond the pale, why would you bother? The second thing that happens, of course, is that there's guilt by association. So people who sort of go, well, actually, I, I really like what trigonometry is doing, what the Battle of Ideas is doing, but I don't want my mates to then say that I might agree with the people who organise it. But we've always had the approach um, in terms of putting on the festival that we haven't pretended that we haven't got opinions. I mean, I'm, you know, well-known commentator. I am now temporarily an MEP, hopefully very temporarily. (laughs) Ella is uh, one of the co-conveners of the festival this year and I'm not. We're well-known for having opinions. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you don't run a a panel that's fair. You have different opinions. And I think the, the key to the success of the festival is we trust the audience. And when we first... Um, organised this festival and they, we said half the time is given over to the public audience quite a lot of people who would be speakers said oh you mean it's open to anyone, <laughs> anyone what do you what do you do if there's trouble well, I think oh, anyway. so there's this assumption that if you let the public in to have their say either they're going to all stand up and be completely vile or that there's going to be a fight anyway I think we've had one or two incidents over the year one mentally ill person one person drunk at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning and that's it and we have thousands of people every year and of, the, then we've got a USP which is speakers will say at the end of being on a panel oh my god where did you get the audience from? Because they were all really smart, asking interesting questions, but they're also, you've got leavers, you've got remainers, you've got woke students, you've got uh, uh, free speech uh, absolutists, and they all seem to be able to engage with each other. Well, shocker for the locker. I mean, the, for us, that is what public debate is. Not just what it should be, it is what it is. If you trust the speakers and the audience to interact with each other intelligently, um, it creates a really open space. It's a great point. And I remember when I went last year, I just found it incredibly invigorating the way people were speaking and they were listening. And we were talking about this before. You listen to Newsnight or your question time, and it just degenerates into this row. How much responsibility do the mainstream media have for, in a sense, debasing public debate? Well, I, 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 no, I, Ellen's ready this to is, go. I can see. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you go first. I, I'm always slightly reluctant to kind of blame the media mm. because they're an easy target. Mm. Yeah. I am one of the people who sits on the couch and shouts at the media, so it's not as though I don't. But I think that um, the media have, in recent years, on certain subjects 
become slightly compromised in terms of the impartiality question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do worry about that because I think it's going to lead to a backlash of people just saying, I'm not going to take any notice of the mainstream media. I'm delighted that there are alternative forms of media, such as trigonometry. I mean, that makes me, uh, that kind of widening out of the discussion in the debate is hugely important. And I hope that that actually keeps the mainstream media slightly more honest because they actually have to look and say, wow, a lot of people are watching these guys doing their interviews. I mean, maybe we got to look at why there's less people watching our current affairs. No, 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 please stop doing that. (laughs) Keep doing all the crap that you're doing. We want to keep trigonometry unique. Thank you very much. What I I was going to say was that was that Ellen rightly made the point about the setup. I mean, the number of times that I've been invited onto the media where it's basically we've got three reasonable people and the mad lunatic Claire Fox come to join us as well. Now, they don't exactly introduce you like that, but you're basically the... We have to have balance, so we've invited a lunatic on. Yes. He's got mad extremist views. And you are walking into this situation where you're being set up with a certain sneer. And I always try and be reasonable at all times so that, and then you can, they're like, oh, you seem to not be what we thought you would be. But I think that from an audience's point of view, politics, not the media, but politics has squeezed out voters, citizens and the electorate from the debate. We had a brief flowering of their emergence around a particular referendum where they felt that they were back being taken seriously and since then they've been denounced and we're told not to take them seriously which is one of the explanations I think for why people are so completely over the top on social media because what you get is they're so frustrated that they're being talked about and down to but without any way of expressing themselves that now that you have got Twitter and Facebook you feel like and you know and the shouting from the couch takes the form of shouting on Twitter and in a way letting off steam so you can understand the frustration of that being uh, ignored and patronized and talked about now expresses itself so I, I don't I'm not as frightened by social media abuse as some people make out, because I just think, in a way, it's people just rightly expressing their utter frustration, even though a lot of it's aimed at me and a lot of it's vile. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, I mean, I think there's two things to say about the mainstream media. I don't want to slag them off too much, they give me a lot of work, but on the other hand, I think part of the problem is the influence of social media. There's one specific influence of social media in that lots of the uh, television programmes, radio programmes, are seeking to get gotcha moments to be clipped on Twitter. I mean, that's just like their modus operandi now. Um, Pin the politician, get them to say the bad thing, put it on Twitter. What that means is you often spend five minutes listening to an incredibly dull conversation on the Today programme or on Newsnight or on Channel 4, wherever it is, where you're just waiting for the gotcha moment and often doesn't happen. So like, there's countless times where I've sat listening to the morning, morning radio, hearing someone ask a politician the same question, you know, not going to get the answer out of it. It's like a poor man's Paxman and it just doesn't work. And it's really, really boring. And it is really frustrating because then you do end up wanting to go on Twitter and saying, what the fucking hell are you doing? Won't we'll talk about the news. And the other side of it is that I have had countless experiences in green rooms and back rooms before and after shows where people kind of forget that you are not part of the mix of things. You're not part of the media establishment. And so they start talking about politics. And what's really interesting is they often talk about how utterly boring, oh God, we have to talk about Brexit again. Oh God, we have to talk about this again. Um, And what they don't realise is that for many people, 
On leave and remain side, this is actually a very exciting moment in politics because things seem to be up in the air. And if you had a sensible sense of news producers being able to galvanise on that, you could do something really interesting with this. You could actually really engage an audience. You could actually, you know, you've got a political space in which people want to talk about things. So use that. But I think they're still stuck in this notion of what they want is just for the current political mess to go away so they can get back to doing, you know, the kind of things that you saw in the thick of it, you know, launching a policy, talking about it, doing all these sort of mundane things. They want to go back to business as usual. That's politicians and the media establishment. They just don't want to deal with the current fray. And that's coming across as either very dull or very febrile exchanges and I don't think any of us come out any better off from either watching or being part of it. Because one of the things when we started the festival and before it was fashionable, we always used to say about the battle of ideas, you know, get out of your echo chamber. I mean, now that's a cliche, but at the time it was quite an important declaration as far as we were concerned that you should come and hear other opinions beyond your own. But I think that what's now incredible is that when people actually do have civilised exchanges over even very febrile issues like Brexit, uh, people actually don't want that to occur. So, for example, UK in a changing Europe, um, who are actually involved in the festival this year, who are academics, who are, you know, broadly speaking, based on the research, not that keen that we leave the European Union. And, and I don't agree with the number of the, 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 the statements that they come out. But they're actually really interesting. I read their publications. I'm interested, you know, and this works both ways, but they did a podcast with me and they got abused for interviewing me by their own <laughs> followers. Why is that woman on? And I, and I also did my first um, MEP uh, um, uh, blog for them as they asked me to. And again, I got, they got a lot of abuse for allowing me a platform. And by the way, just to show I'm being fair-minded about it, it was also the case that when I retweeted and said it's worth reading this from UK and Changing Europe and Anna Menon and what's the problems with a, 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 a no-deal Brexit and some of the real challenges of it, people who are my supporters will say, why are you retweeting that? And I'm like, because I think everyone should read more generally. And, you know, if they're wrong, we should argue against it. So I, I think that the, the media... The mainstream media, sadly, are far too prepared to, to put the label on you. You're there to perform in a role. And if you don't kind of, do, you know, it's like that kind of, what was that comedian used to go? Fight, fight, you know, but it was like that sort of like, if you don't perform as some sort of like fighting, uh, you know, uh, horrible kind of like spitting at each other, which actually often spontaneously happens. But if you don't, because you think, oh, that's a reasonable point, I think yeah. this, they're almost disappointed that you're not giving them the gotcha moment yeah. or the kind of clip that you can then say, this is real live politics. Where actually it's not. No, it's not. It's a bitchy, unpleasant exchange. Yeah. Why don't we actually have an attempt at understanding each other's perspectives? Well, just to show that we're fair-minded, whenever we talk about the mainstream media, one thing that should be mentioned, actually, a lot of people on our side in terms of new media are doing the same thing as well. There's lots yeah. of people who are not being fair or reasonable or objective in any way. And uh, that's just a long way of Constantine saying he wants to go back on Good Morning Britain. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on that show plenty, but actually that's mainstream media. And um, yes. <laughs> the, one of the things they do is they they... they 
very, they're very careful to make sure, as you'll know, to make sure that, you know, you kept in a separate room from the other guests who you're supposedly debating. It was quite funny. I was on a radio program the other day and um, a woman who didn't know me, I was chatting to her. She didn't know who I was. Uh, and she was saying, oh, yeah, you know, Good Morning Britain when, uh, you know, they, that, that kind of debate where they have someone who's black talking about racism and then they get a racist on against them and i was like well i'm usually the racist <laughs> in that debate well you are russian mate yeah. so it's entirely it's in my genes so it's, it's part of my culture but one of my favorite moments at the battle of ideas last year actually coming to talk about identity politics slightly was you were hosting and moderating a debate between a, a bunch of people and you were taking questions from the audience um and i think you 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 took questions from two men in a row uh, and then at this point, a woman stood up at the back and started shouting about how you need to ask a question. You get a question from a woman. And you went, that's not how we do things here. Just sit down and shut up. I'll ask. The- <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a question from who I choose to. And I thought it was quite um, refreshing to see that, you know, the, this idea of identity politics doesn't seem to be quite as strong in that space as it is elsewhere. Is that is that fair to say? Well, we... Ch- we challenge the presumptions that are basically a kind of box ticking ritual. And I remember that incident because the truth was it was the first round of questions. Four people put their hands up who were men and I was taking the third one when the interjection happened. But we'd only just started the discussion. So I was hardly cutting out every woman in the room. And there was hundreds of people at that event, um, at that particular uh, conversation. And you know, as one would anticipate, cause a lot of women in the audience eventually spoke, but it wasn't because somebody had said, are there any women in? You know what I mean? I mean, we're we having a debate. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, have we got any blacks here? Do you know what I mean? It's a horrible, vile way to see it, right? To be fair, you know, that sounds worse in my voice. No, no, no. I mean, but I mean it's the, whole, but the whole thing is yeah. vile, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you look out and you, you, you see an audience. You're trying to encourage an open debate. You're not sitting there going, have we had enough LGBTQI speakers to satisfy the quota police? No, that's not the way it is. But interestingly... We don't play the identity politics game at the Battle of Ideas, but if you actually look at the audience, you will find that they are all ages, all ethnicities, yes. no doubt all sexuality. They are Basically, they are the public, yes. and we are yeah. a mixed and varied crowd. Yes. But we're not trying to get in a group of people. It's also the case that I always think, as we always do, which is um, in one of the debates that I was doing on, on a, couple, a few years ago, you know, somebody sort of said, well, you know, I, I just feel as though you know, this is completely biased and what about the women's voice? And it was interesting because most of the people who'd spoken had been women, but what they meant was Mm. it's not what I want. You know, it's not to be an accusation that you were bringing too many men in because the women who'd spoken actually were not arguing what this young feminist had wanted them to argue. Mm. And I said, well, it doesn't really matter what gender you are. Just speak and stop trying to do that, right? Say what you want and then we'll have the argument. So I, I, I hope that by the end of it, people realise actually it's better to not do the box ticking because you get a more interesting discussion. And also I think it's, I mean, last year we ran a strand that I chaired on feminism and out of f- five or six debates, however many it was, there was only one guy on a panel and <laughs> it didn't really come into my mind, but it just so happened <laughs> that on issues of you know, discussions about gender pay gap, I decided to get four people who are very good on it. They all happen to be women. And inevitably, 
inevitably, at least once every time in the debate, someone got up and said, well, where's the representation of men mm. on this panel? And you think, it's just... This has just gone too far. Yes. Yeah. Like, this is just, that's, that's funny, like that yeah. someone's decided to take issue mm. with that. But I think a lot of the time, most people do think that it's a bit ridiculous. Mm. And they do, if they come along to the debate and they hear that, for me, always the most crucial thing is have you got the political balance right? And in some cases, having the political balance right um, with the best people that you can get, the most interesting people you can get, they might all look the same. They might all come from the same background. But the question is, are they going to say different things? And I think people might, sometimes people might join our audiences and be kind of sitting a bit like uh, already have a prejudice about what's going to happen. But then they hear people open their mouths and speak and your mind changes and you think, okay, actually that person is completely on my side or completely not on my side. I think the thing about the identity politics wars, we've got a strand on it um, this year talking about everything from incels and Peterson Mm. and toxic masculinity and all that kind of discussion up to gross out feminism, which is like about um, the person as political and everything in between race and all sorts. I think that people are at this point so sick of the identity politics wars because it's so unpleasant. I mean, because you, you, there really is no end to it. It doesn't matter if you are a, you know, a woman of colour who's also a lesbian. Someone will always trump you. There's a kind of a, like identity politics Olympics going on. And so you can't ever really feel safe. You can't ever really feel solid in your position if you're going to engage in that debate because someone will always come along and be more victimised, more have an identity that's more important in the hierarchy than you. And so I like to think that a lot of people who come to the festival want to just put that aside and then talk about the real politics behind it because yeah, it doesn't I mean, really, even as someone who, if you do buy into the whole identity thing, you know, like if, if, I, if we ever go on panels and say, well, as a woman, you just know that it feels hollow. It does. I, I, but what I was going to say was that the, 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 the reality is, is that you just get born... You have a skin colour. You're a woman. I mean, I know that saying that I'm a woman has now become a matter of major political controversy because I'll probably yeah. be accused of some discrimination. But I mean, in general, these are not achievements in one's life. Yeah. <laughs> They're things that happen. You know, there you are. And, you know, and, and what you become, who you become, yes. Is, yes. Is, is not about those things, but it's about your mind, about the views you have, the morality that you embrace, and all of these things. And part of growing up, of course, is, is, is growing into someone, is working out who you will be mm. in the in the scheme of things. And I think it's so vile that we've got to a point where we're, we're, we're able to trump each other based on something we didn't achieve. That's all I'm saying. I mean, if somebody says, well, I'm black, well, it's like, yes. But, I mean, what does that mean? It doesn't help me get anywhere in terms of understanding the world we live in. But um, uh, uh, I think you're actually right. People are fed to it. One of my mates actually said to me a, a year or so ago, you know, I've never felt so black. And I didn't understand mm. what he meant. But what mm. he was saying was that he now feels as, I mean, he's been involved in anti-racist politics and politics and in general for a long time. But what he was saying was he now feels as though the only way that people see him is as black. Through his identity. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that in, rather than being taken seriously as an intellectual, a film critic and all of these things, he's now sort of invited onto panels because he's black. Mm. You know, he's assumed to have an insight because he's black. Whereas he was saying, no, uh, that's not, not what I want to be defined by. So it's ironic that having allowed racism to define people through skin colour for many years, and that's you know still what a racist does, is assumes your character and your morality and your whole being because of your skin colour. 
or whichever particular prejudice you go down. Now it's identity politics that does the same. And I think that people have a sneaky feeling that this is very, very, very regressive. And so at least I think there's a sense of relief when they come to the battle of ideas that we don't just accommodate to that. I was slightly rude with that woman. Uh, I, I, I seem to Which I enjoyed. But, uh, but I think, I think what, what I was trying to establish, is, as we often do, is to say things like, you know, if you find something offensive, argue back, don't walk out and storm out. Or, you know, don't say you're triggered and not participate. You know, don't complain about those things. You know, let's just have a public conversation about really important issues and trust each other that we can cope with any challenges or offence that we might hear in the course of that. But equally, you, sorry, oh, Francis, just to find yeah. very, I'm not even going to ask a question. Yeah. Equally, though, you don't exclude people who are of that way of thinking. There were plenty of Oh, my of God. Them. There's loads of I mean, yeah. probably the majority of people there <laughs> believe that, yeah. but they can argue for that. They yeah. can argue against what yeah. I've just said. Mm. But you argue against it, not boycott yes. or label. Yeah. Explain why you think it would be different to do that. Yeah. 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 No, but I mean, it is, a, it is fortunately or unfortunately become a serious political viewpoint in terms of most of our political narrative today is defined by identity politics. Even, you know, something like Brexit has been largely attempted to be defined by identity politics. And so you've got to engage with it. Even if you are like me and Claire, someone who's very sceptical of the benefits of seeing things through an identity politics lens, you know, it is actually more and more becoming the established way of thinking, which is, you know, we've just been talking about the mainstream media, the way they cast debates will be through an identity politics lens, the way they see having topics will be around an identity politics lens. So that's the realm we're in. We're happy to take that on. What we're not happy to do is be cowed by it. So yeah. that's what the but, but I think that, that we a caution to us all, I mean, I'm a great fan of Titania McGrath, mm. or, you know, rather, as the and and I, I love that. And you've done lots of things on the issues of identity and had some great guests on trigonometry discussing this. But I, I, I do think that I've got to say to myself all the time, you know, I don't want to over-lampoon them. Because mm. the reason I mentioned Titania McGrath is easy make fun of. Yeah. Because the most ludicrous sides of these things are, let's be frank, you know, easy to satirise and say, for God's sake, and it can be like that. But there are obviously things that one needs to engage in. And although I hate the promiscuous use of the word far-right or racist and so on, there are racists. I encountered them. Um, you 100%. Know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of people at the moment um, who are having a big campaign against the Brexit party on the basis that it's too politically correct for having allowed a commie uh, pro-migrant like me in it, in its ranks. And they are uh, more than uh, willing to explain their views on uh, deportations and immigration. And they are openly racist, right? And and so I don't want... And you can see that people, when they're on the receiving end of some pretty nasty attacks, if you're a woman or if you're uh, black or what have you, 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 you look to different political ways of organising. I don't think that identity politics is the way forward. I think it's really regressive. But I don't want to suggest that there's no issues in society that need to be confronted and tackled. And that's where the interesting political argument comes. Well, how do you tackle that then? Should it be through um, kind of saying we as ethnic minorities want to organise in this way? Or should it be more open anti-racist campaign and so on and so forth? So we try and take these things seriously rather than just dismissing them all. I was Francis, I apologise. Yeah, you no, turned that into a question. Sorry, mate. Go no, for it. it's fine. I was just going to say it doesn't affect me because I don't see race or gender. But anyway... <laughs> 
guys, just to let you know, my show, All Well That Ends Well, which I advertised earlier, The Bill Murray, that is now very close to selling out. So we've had to open up another date. I will be doing it again with Francis. I'm seeing it again on the 24th of November. The link's in the description. I'm also coming to Cambridge in, in November as well. So check that out. Absolutely. Uh, please come down. It's going to be a great show uh, uh, when I'm on. And then when Constantine's on, you just enjoy the interval. <laughs> <laughs> there is no interval, by the way. So it's just uh, me and Francis. Uh, we'll see you there. So, we, I mean, we were talking about identity politics. Identity politics is something, I mean, it's been embraced by the right, but very much by the left and labels and all the rest of it. And I see you two. If I would give you a label, it'd be... Uh, homeless lefties in that in like me we are of the left but we look at the left and we would go oh for fuck's sake <laughs> and we just go i mean i can't vote labor in the next election i just can't um could you tell us number one uh, what being left wing means and is it compatible with now being a labor voter i don't from my opinion anyway i don't think um being a left wing in the interests of working class liberation has ever been compatible with the voting with the Labour Party for a number of reasons that are historically too long to go into in this interview. But um, the funny thing is, I think, Claire, you've said this before as well, is that my views in terms of what I want from society and societal change haven't changed. So, they have, so whether they're left wing or not, or, you know, it often feels quite lazy to call yourself left wing now because it's just like saying I'm a nice person <laughs> um, because right wing has become evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but my views haven't changed in terms of what I want to see in a future society. But I think what has changed is the the rest of the conversation. So people who now still call themselves left wing in that quite lazy way are, for example, if you take a figure like Paul Mason, who is a lefty by all accounts of he's understood to be one, but has become this you know incredible cheerleader for the European Union, who, to my mind, is you know the antithesis of all kind of left wing Euroscepticism and left wing thought of workers' liberation. So these things have become completely confused, and part of the problem is that the left as a kind of block, have just moved toward a sort of centrist establishment outlook, from my point of view. So it's not about, you know, challenging the nature of the way society is organised and arguing for more for everyone and, you know, let's make massive societal change. It's about sort of tinkering at the edges and, you know, making working life slightly nicer for people, slightly raising the minimum wage taxing rich people a little bit more. It's all this kind of you know, stuff that for me seems like really boring centrism um, or kind of you know, socialism light. And I think what you have to assess if you are someone like myself, perhaps Claire, who you know still holds on to some of the serious and concrete left-wing values, like freedom of speech, like Euroscepticism at the moment, um, and other things, what is where is the debate today? And the debate, I think, rightly or wrongly, isn't anymore about left or right. It isn't about these clear political distinctions because we're not in the 1980s. We're not in the same world as we were when class politics was a very real thing. So you, it is just you have to face up to the fact that it is just politically lazy and rather dishonest to keep going on about we're the lefties and you're the right wingers because the vast majority of the population out there just don't see things in that way anymore. 
that might be a good thing, that might be a bad thing. It might be changing as it happens, because as we've seen, the kind of discussion about Brexit has become quite clearly cut between an us and them narrative, and who knows where that's going to go. But I don't think you can anymore be safe in those right and left labels because they've just been hollowed out. I mean, I do feel politically homeless. Um, you can't say that you're an MEP for the Brexit <laughs> no, party. But, that, but I was actually going to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a party that was actually only formed because there was a pre-existing movement. Mm. I mean, you know, you can't, uh, no disrespect to the people who set up the Brexit party, but they didn't go out and build it from scratch because it was already three years worth of people wandering around saying, I feel politically homeless <laughs> and I'm so frustrated about the non-delivery of the of the vote to leave in the referendum. That Then you kind of have a party that comes along with the title of the Brexit party and sweeps up that uh, constituency. And so therefore it's not the traditional political party that we've known uh, from the past. And its slogan, change politics for good, has got a much greater resonance than I thought it would um, because when I go and talk to people, people say, yeah, we need new political movements, new parties. You know, they want a kind of refreshing of politics because they do feel politically homeless. I mean, there was a very moving moment that I, I, I was at a meeting and one uh, uh, woman stood up and said, you know, I've, I've been in the Conservative Party for 20 years uh, and until recently I'd never met a trade unionist ever. <laughs> And now I'm going to leave meetings and I'm meeting, you know, there's Communist Party members over there. There's members of the RMT. There's other conservatives, all sorts of people here. Right. So she's kind of honest. And then from the back of the room, the next contribution was somebody who stood up and said, I'm a shop steward. And I've recently just uh, got involved in the Brexit Party, as it happens in that instance. And I've always despised and hated every single Tory and I found myself <laughs> on a stall with that very lady the other day and we got on like a house on fire and so people are realising as well that maybe the tribes from the past are slightly different we've got new political challenges but the other thing I wanted to say was you know I, I, I was interviewed by um, a number of publications last in the last week or so uh, Washington Post, New York and they all sort of start off and they say well you've had a fast you know one minute you're the Revolutionary Communist Party and the next minute you're Brexit Party. And I said, there was a 25-year gap. I mean, let's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 it's a kind of odd one, that, right? You know, because what's happened is, because I actually... And it was unusual when I stood up and said, you know, I didn't think I was going to end up on the same platform as Nigel Farage when I first was announced as a candidate. You know, I've come from the left. I wasn't expecting this to then mean that there was a kind of wholesale going over everything that was ever written by the Revolutionary Communist Party that I was in 25 years ago and then trying to suggest that I'd said it two seconds ago. Mm. Um, and I'm not denouncing that past, but there's a lot of water uh, uh, gone under the bridge since then. In terms of politics, I mean, I, I, I mean by that that it didn't used to be that if you were a free speech absolutist that people would then say, so you're far right. Mm. Mm. I mean, the left embraced, you know, actually still in America it is the case that people on the left are associated with free speech. I consider this to be part of the enlightenment gain that you would have free speech and open mind. You know, it, 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 Ella's already uh, mentioned, you know, that the left has had the major were the major figures in Euroscepticism and the emergence of the EU. Tony Benn, I mean, the one thing that I agreed with Jeremy Corbyn for for 25 years <laughs> was his attitude to democracy in relation to the imposition 
and anti-democratic nature of the European Union. I mean, it's not my fault he's changed his mind or been cowardly or whatever yeah. has happened to him, right? And has then, he changed his mind? No, but this is the... No, no but the reason I say that lost is he's... He, no, he's lost his... But he is the uh, leader of a party who, only this morning, I think one of its MPs, I think it's Angela Regal MP, but it, I, I'm pretty sure, just said, let's be frank and tell everyone that Brexit is an alt-right, far-right project. Right now, that's not even just saying it's a Tory project, mm. right? You know, and then uh, Jeremy Corbyn says we don't want a banker's Brexit, and they think, you know the bit where the bankers, uh, well, the bank, but the bank supported Remain. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, what does that mean even? Right? They funded a lot of Remain campaigns openly. I mean, in the public sphere, they've argued that we should stay in. The... So, you know, what I'm trying to say is, um, is that these? It does get to the point where the labels become meaningless. I, I was the publisher of LM Magazine, which had previously been Living Marxism. I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party into my 30s before it closed itself down. Um, but I, so I brought. Of course, I think of myself as on the left. I haven't had some sort of... But the world around me and what constitutes left-wing has changed. And when I see people who are the leaders of left-wing movements arguing for censorship, mm. arguing for people to lose their jobs, not be platformed and so on because they said something that somebody found offensive, I think, actually, I don't want anything to do with that if that's the left, right? I don't want that label anymore. You know, I, I, I can't bring myself now to simply say... I'm a left winger without a caveat, which says, but not in the contemporary way of understanding the left. Yeah. Well, this is something I wanted to ask you about in terms of running uh, the battle of ideas and uh, censorship and platforming. There is this idea that giving people a platform is in a way enabling their views. And therefore, if they have bad views or the wrong views, you are therefore responsible. What is your attitude to you know, giving a space for people to talk from across the spectrum uh, and the critics that might say, well, you've you've given a platform to this person that I personally disagree with, therefore you are all evil and bad and, and whatever else that comes out of it. I think the golden rule for us is if it's politically relevant and if it's interesting, then we will look to give it a platform. If it's a debate that we think needs to happen, then it's something that we should facilitate and something that we should get involved in. So that, you know, everyone, whether you're the editor of a magazine or the organiser of a festival, um, you have to look at what is going to produce a good debate and a successful debate. And one, actually, a debate that we're sort of politically interested in expanding the conversation. So that doesn't mean that you, we've, you know, just had discussions about, um, talked about people being set up. That doesn't mean you find the mad person who's got the really extreme views on, you know, anti-abortion or whatever it is, the kind of really, really crazy view, and you put them on a platform then with uh, some very mild person and let them bat it out. That's, <laughs> that's, and that's not no platforming someone, by the way. That's just having a sensible view of how to put on an event or how to have a discussion. But the cold panic about no platform is a really disingenuous conversation because actually it's not about, you know, it's, it never has, I've never looked at a panel that's been questioned on no platform. And I've been involved in this for many years, both with Spiked and when I was at university, at the University of Sussex, and there was campaigns around no platforming there. Every panel that's been challenged has, to my mind, been really quite mild. I mean, in terms of whether it's been Julie Bindle or um, some from the Tory party, it's always, it's never a kind of rabid 
kind of viciously murderous person who you think, God, why would anyone want to listen to them? It's always just someone who's a bit politically contentious. And so the, the, the fear about no platforming often just comes from people not wanting to have the person that they disagree with heard. Mm. Um, but once you get over that, you have to say that a platform, what is a platform? If you've got, a, a, for example, our debates, most of them take place where you've got sort of five people, two or three on each side, and then a chair. If you have a strong chair who can facilitate a public debate, then you really don't have to worry about what's being said and its effect on the audience. Because there's this other thing in relation to no platforming that, you know, this is the crazy thing about universities, and especially when I was at Sussex. They would never have a UKIP person on a platform, even though actually at that time, UKIP was doing relatively well in the polls, and it was actually something interesting to investigate um, what their views were. The, the, people at the University of Sussex and students were terrified that UKIP, this UKIP guy was going to get up and say, you know, whatever they thought he was going to say, all black people should be deported. And then all the student populace of Sussex would be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just a complete misunderstanding mm, yeah. of both the power of that speaker and the nature of the audience. So it all comes down to a distrust of people's ability to challenge things. You know, I've been almost hounded off panels before because I've spoken about controversial things at university and I, you know, the students have not been swayed by my point of view. Uh, the opposite has happened. I think we, the problem with the no platforming panic is it's again, I mean, this is a theme. It's again, it's a distrust of the public's ability to hold people to account and challenge people. Um, and it's also the case that there's also this sort of idea that we've just been talking about labels. If you have someone that's slightly more hardened in their position that they're somehow an extremist and what are we supposed to have beige panels with everyone who's going to say roughly the same kind of middling thing I mean who wants to go and see that exactly because it, it you know you can sanitize debate by basically saying nobody's saying anything that is going to upset anyone anywhere in the room in which case this festival would attract no one because it would just be you know boring basically but I I think that we, we confront two problems one is the, the, the way that people are labelled bigots. And we've all made jokes about it here, and you've said, you know, we're Nazis and all the rest of it. And it is quite ludicrous. But actually, genuinely, it's not pleasant. No, no, of course no. not. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you know, actually, you know, when people call me a Nazi, or say I'm a fascist enabler, and I don't just mean using the label, I mean seriously accuse me of enabling fascism or replicating Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speeches. These are, you know, to your face. I mean, yeah. these are very serious things to suggest. You know, somebody responsible for the murderous... Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, the idea that I have to explain that the uh, Holocaust of Jewish people is not something that I not only agree with, but that I have any remote truck with is ludicrous. But when they say you're enabling the rise of fascism in this country, a militarised, vicious anti-humanist, nihilistic ideology, which I despise. And I have to go, no, I'm not. It sounds <laughs> pathetic. But, but if you label people bigots, and we know that there's a whole new range, transphobic, Islamophobic, there's all sorts of things which you can be labelled not because you are a bigot, but because you've said something that goes against what a very narrow group of people representing that community, but not voted by that community, have decided to label Islamophobic. So you will know... There are many people who are transgender don't agree with trans activists. Millions of people who are Muslims don't agree with the people who say, on behalf of all Muslims, I call you Islamophobic. Mm -hmm. So that's one problem. 
we would just basically have to go and check the list of who somebody else has called a bigot. We're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand... That's a good way of finding speakers, though, if they've been called all the right names. But, but on the other hand, and this is what I was going to say, was a lot of students I talked to are kind of newly espousing free speech, and, and I like to think that we've at least opened their minds to it, and that we, you know, a lot of free speech societies um, have kind of, you know, somebody would invite me because they've invite, read my book and they're all enthused, we're going to do things. And then they'll say, we're going to invite so-and-so. And actually, they're going to invite a bigger, a real bigger... Because they think that the way to confront the bands mm. is to invite somebody for the sake of annoying everybody. Shock tactics. Shock tactics, yes. you know. I know this person will get banned, so we're going to invite X. I'm not going to name names, but there are obviously some people. You know, I, I suppose the archetype people will be Katie Hopkins or Tommy Robinson. Yeah. And they say, we thought we'd invite them because that will really upset all of our kind yeah. of censorious woke. Mm. And I say, why would you do that? I haven't got anything interesting to say. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you don't want to... I, I, I think you have an editorial responsibility, as Ella has indicated, to put together interesting, compelling panels of people who are seriously going to discuss the issues in hand. And very often the people who are the most well-known as the outrage mongers are actually not that interesting. Hmm. Now, if you think they are, that's that's well, that's a legitimate. Invite them. But if, you, if you're going to just invite them to be symbolic of the fact that you're anti-censorship, mm. that's actually as disrespectful to ideas as those people who are no-platforming as well. Nobody's entitled to a platform just because they're banned from everywhere. <laughs> then actually it doesn't mean that I'm going to go, well, just out of annoyance I'm going to get yeah. them. Then on the other hand, there's there's been times when, you know, it's, it's like a feature now of public debate in which the, a festival, whatever festival or event will put on something, someone will be, someone will complain about X person being given a platform and then all the other speakers will back away and say we don't want to mm. by guilt of association mm. be involved in this event um, because you're giving a platform to this person and from my point of view I've always thought say for example like if I managed to get on a panel with Steve Bannon or any of these people have caused controversy I'd die to do it because the challenge yeah, of the challenge of being able to get into a space where you could have the opportunity to politically humiliate and take down an opponent it's like that that's what you want who wants to if you're really serious about your political views which I like to think we are um you want to win people over and you want to win the argument. You don't just want to keep chatting. Let's just chat with people forever and ever and let's just, you know, throw around. And if you want to win the argument, so what better opportunity than to be given someone who's challenging, who, you know, everyone is running scared from. But then, you know, sure, I'm not, I sound like I'm blowing smoke up my own ass, but it's like, you know, you, <laughs> if you did manage to politically debate them and win, wouldn't that be far better than everyone backing away and pretending like this person didn't exist? So there's an element of cowardice in this discussion that, you know, that I think gets missed where a lot of the time when people say, well, I'm not joining a platform with this person because they're a bigot. You think, well, if they're such a disgusting, despicable bigot who nobody agrees with them, so then sure you can blow them over like that. Just go and do it. So just in case anyone's uh, uh, concerned, we haven't invited Steve Bannon. I mean, I, 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 no, I completely 
completely. Why not? What is the censorship well, all I'm, about? I was referencing the discussion about that there was the an event econ- at the, the Economist years ago. We both involved yeah. It was yeah. a, uh, on Newsnight, but no. But, but even you know, so I don't think I'd particularly be that interested in what Steve Bannon's got to say now. No, anyway. but they invited Steve Bannon. Actually, the Economist had a festival, invited Steve Bannon. They expressly said they were inviting Steve Bannon to defeat his arguments mm. and to humiliate him, which you know that was their aim. As a, I might be disinclined to take the say yes to the invitation if you've already proclaimed that was your aim. But nonetheless, he yeah. said yes. And um, uh, half of the British and UK and American speakers at that festival pulled out. And Ella and I didn't. And, Lots and we, of which, by the way, who weren't even on a panel with him. They weren't on panels with him. Oh, and we they, weren't on panel. they just pulled out yeah. because Steve it's Bannon had, any, had anything to do with the whole thing. But, but there was a real attempt at bullying the festival mm. to, to, to pull him. And in fact, the New Yorker actually did pull They'd also invited him. Now, whatever one thinks about Steve Bannon, if you think that he... I, I don't think that Steve Bannon is responsible for every... Uh, I think he's overflattered as being responsible for a range of movements, which I think that in his dreams he wished he was having an influence over. Yeah. The idea that he's created all of these populist movements around Europe, you think, no, actually, we don't need Steve Bannon. People are kind of quite angry with things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But nonetheless, they say he's responsible for that, in which case it would seem to me you have a responsibility to expose his ideas to interrogation and, and, and argument. Yeah. I actually think Steve Bannon's a rather uninteresting character, and therefore I don't see the need to have him I wouldn't not have him out of, because I think he's you know that, and that's the way you're trying to trying to think of things I mean we're also by the way a small organisation with no money we can't afford to fly in every interesting <laughs> or, or American speaker so you kind of and I, I wanted to just at this point say that you asked how do you get people I mean a lot of people say no to speaking at the Battle of Ideas and say, so, well, I'd never drew. How, how could you put on that event? You seem to be questioning, you know, this. And we go, yes, it's the interrogating an orthodoxy. That's the idea. Well, how dare you? No, I'm not going to do it. And people will say I wouldn't speak at that festival. I think the fact that every year we get 400 plus speakers across the political range is a credit to them. Mm. And I'm delighted that you, you're doing your trigonometry live at the Battle of Ideas with Andrew Adonis because Andrew Adonis and I are well-known political opponents of each other when it comes to the Brexit issue. We've come head-to-head on on Good Morning Britain and in live debates and so on and so forth. But my God, that man deserves credit because he says, of course, I'll come along and speak at the Battle of Ideas. Of course, I'll go on trigonometry. And I don't just mean Andrew Dennis. There's lots of people like that. We should not be frightened of having the discussions with each other. If we're really serious about what we believe, as Alice says, we should try and win over audiences of all shapes and sizes. Which is why you should be there at the Battle of Ideas. Absolutely. At what point does it go from protecting reputation in inverted commas and tip into intellectual cowardice with not wanting to go up against somebody who you disagree with? We don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, 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 one thing I would say is I have occasionally said I don't want to go on the platform. I mean, if I think somebody is just not serious and he's just going to come out with a load of bile, I mean, I, I, you've got to decide yourself whether that's not no platform. It's just I... You know, you have a limited amount of time in your life yeah. and, you, and and so yeah. on. But I think that, that whether it's intellectual cowardice or not, to paraphrase J.S. Mill, you know, you can't really be convincing in your own argument 
if you don't test it out against somebody else's? How do you even know if you believe what you believe unless you expose it to a range of other arguments? And my fear is that if we don't really rescue a spirit of debate in society, that people will not be able to argue anymore. You know, that's why so many young people are so shocked when they hear an opposite. It's like, oh, 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 because they've actually only heard one side of the argument. And obviously what you need to have done is steal yourself in amongst a range of debate of arguments that you've never heard before. So you can think, actually, this is confirmed that I am absolutely right. Or possibly, just possibly, you hear something, you think, oh, Maybe I'm going to change my mind. I mean, when I was 17, I had very strong opinions on a range of issues. Thankfully, <laughs> I didn't get yeah. stuck with that. Yes. Right? I mean, over the years, I've changed my mind. Yeah. I, by the way, hope that I change my mind in the next decade and that I'm not exactly... Got, I mean, I have principles I believe in, but the idea that you would go, this is it. This is it. I will never think anything other than this. I don't want to hear anything else. I'm never reading a book. I'm never being challenged. My goodness, intellectual death. Awful. And I also think we need to recognise that well, there needs to be a bit more of a giving people space and sympathising with people. I mean that quite seriously and giving people the benefit of the doubt because especially with young people, I remember when I was in my late teens, early 20s and first started kind of properly getting involved in politics, I had my opinions. And when people challenged them, it would really upset me. I mean, like, to the point where, I'd, you know, my now who's now my husband used to be a member of the Socialist Workers Party. And we used to have the most ferocious. I mean, the left always fights worse among itself. <laughs> ferocious arguments where we'd like scream and hit each other. And it would be really terrible. And then, <laughs> it's a very happy marriage. <laughs> and he's absolutely lovely. <laughs> Whatever about Ella. <laughs> and, and, but, and, when, and then eventually, you know, when I started doing journalism work and I'd get put up against people and it would, it's really hard. I mean, it is really hard to learn how to argue. And there's actually, this is what Claire writes in her book as well, that there is actually an art to debate and discussion that is learned and you won't get it immediately and it is true that if you but start off believing this is my absolute principle and often it's when someone comes and challenges it and you realize that you're wrong and that's when it hurts the worst and that's when you will be most viciously lash out so it's a point in which we have to give kind of have a sense that these things will happen. People will make mistakes. Mm. And so if you go on a platform with someone or you debate someone and it ends catastrophically, you do not put a black mark through their name and that's it forevermore. You understand that these things are a process and it doesn't just happen like that. And I think especially for young people. Uh, and or, or students in universities or whoever it is, people who are just being brought into their kind of political awakening, as it were, you've got to allow a space for them to make mistakes, change and be open to things. And part of the problem I think now is that you, ma you make one wrong turn or you say one wrong thing or you do one wrong performance and that's it. Mm -hmm. And obviously human beings are much more complex than that. Um, and if that really was the case and we were just going to write off people the minute we disagreed with them and the minute they said something that we didn't quite like, then there would there would be no battle of ideas. There would be none of these things because everything would have just be shut down. Like if I got held to account for some of the things I said when I was 20, yeah. it would be appalling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. a bit of a kind of a generous spirit towards debate, I think, is lacking and needs to be brought back into it. And if I give you, give you one final thing, because I was on the program when, I, when, when the book came out, one of the things I slightly regret is that 
unintentionally I popularized the concept of snowflakes mm. because I was actually just using an American phrase that was very well widely used to describe a phenomenon of, of, of thin-skinned, easily offended young people. And then it's become, as Wikipedia will tell you, they say it's me that brought it in, but, you know, whatever. Um, because I actually now find that irritating when people say, oh, don't be a snowflake. Mm. Because even though I probably say it a bit, but I, I know that can be a, a yeah. la- lack in generosity, right? Because I think that we can all, without uh, sounding like we're going into therapy, I think a, 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 a degree of political empathy, I mean, if we sort of say we don't want over-literalism, we've got to understand metaphor. I think we've also got to be able to put e- ourselves in each other's shoes and try and understand why somebody's coming at something from a different political point of view. And I think that... Um, sense of being open-minded and generous of spirit. That doesn't mean that you have to kind of go, oh, I don't want to upset you and I'm now going to not say anything that might <laughs> upset you. But it doesn't mean that you write people off mm-hmm. or, or caricature them to such an extent that they can't come back. And so I hope that one of the things that's really nice, I mean, I do remember that um, just uh, um, before the referendum, when, uh, or rather after the referendum, people actually said to us, um, oh, my God, I've never... You know, there are people here who voted leave, you know, because we were in the Barbican <laughs> yeah. in London, and that was an unusual... But then there was quite a lot of leavers who said, oh, I've met some really fantastic... I've met some really great people. And some of them voted remain, you know. And that's what you... Yes, we're all citizens. I mean, we've got to the point now where we've forgotten that we did things in good faith, broadly speaking. Well, it's a great thing that you do. I, I think our time is up, Francis, oh, okay. actually. So, Sorry. Uh, no, 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 it's no perfect. don't apologise. It's, it's been, been brilliant. It's been fantastic to have you ba- both back on. We will be at the Battle of Ideas having a discussion with Lord Adonis. We'll also be speaking on different panels. You guys will be speaking on different panels, no doubt. Uh, there's some brilliant things happening. For anyone who wants to come along, it's on the 2nd and the 3rd of November. Can we, in London, of course. We, we have can. to hold our yes. leaflets up. Yes, and yeah, let me have one. There we go. So this is oh, what yes. you do. If people, I'm not very good with camera angles. <laughs> we will be giving away a couple of tickets to some of our fans, as we've discussed. Yeah. But also, if people want to go and buy a ticket, what's the best way to do that? You just head to the website, battleofideas.org.uk, or check out our social media presences. Um, yes, you've got just under a month now for tickets, and you buy one in for the day or the weekend. I hope to see you there. And there's special half price tickets for weekend tickets for students and special concessions. I think uh, school pupils can come for one day for free. And anyway, it's uh, cheaper half the price. Snowflake friendly. There you go. <laughs> I, I never use that word myself either. But uh, we will be there as well. So come and say hello if you're around. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to meet people. It's a great place to explore ideas. And we will be back in a week's time with another brilliant episode. See you next week, guys. Bye bye.